Let's pray. Dear Father, uh, we are just happy to get to be here. It's fun to laugh together, God. It's fun to be together as your people. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you that you call us uh, your children and your friends. Lord, we are so thankful about that. And God, this morning as we uh, hear Phil's message, Lord, teach us from your word. And uh, we want to get closer to you, God. All of us crave uh, relationships, God. And our first relationship needs to be with you. So help us, God. Help us get closer to you and to really see you for who you are and what you can do, God. You are so amazing. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Denny. Oh, five, six-year-old girl gets up one morning, decides that she's feeling very rebellious. She has a reason for her rebellion, and she has a plan for how it's going to carry out. You see, every day, her mother fed her the exact same meal. Peanut butter and jelly sandwich on a plate with a cup of milk right next to it. Well, that little girl was sick and tired of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. She wasn't going to eat another one, and she just determined that today was the day to change everything around. So at lunchtime, she went and sat down at the table, just like she always did. And her mom came carrying the plate, just like she always did. And sitting right in the middle of it was that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mom put it down in front of her and then set the glass of milk down as well. And she folded her arms and refused to touch it. Just sat there. You can picture it. Oh, five, six-year-old girl with her arms folded. Nope, not going to happen. She stayed for quite a while staring at that plate, and her mom chose to say absolutely nothing to her. Finally, the little girl got up from the table and went about her day while mom was going about her day. About two hours later, the little girl went to her mother and said, Mom, my stomach hurts. I have, a, I have a stomach ache. Well, mom threw a glance back over at the table, and she saw that plate with the sandwich that hadn't been touched and the full glass of milk still sitting there. And so she said to her daughter, Well, honey, the problem is your stomach's empty. If you put something in it, you'll feel better. Well, the little girl still refused. She wasn't going to have any part of that. A little while later, the doorbell rang, and she went and answered it. The preacher was there. She opened up the door and invited the preacher in, so he came in and sat down in the living room where he started talking with the little girl's mom about church business. What the business was doesn't matter. Nobody really knows. They're just talking about church business. In the midst of the conversation, the preacher said to the little girl's mother, I have been fighting a terrible headache all day long. It is just horrible. Little girl heard that and she interrupted the conversation by saying to the preacher, Well, I know what the problem is. Your head's empty. If you put something in it, it'll feel better. <laughs> you know, as a preacher, I'm offended by that joke. As, as a person, I think it's pretty funny. Even as a Christian, I think that is pretty funny. There is a, a lot of truth to it. There are people that are hungry and thirsty, and if they would get something to eat and take a drink, they'd feel a whole lot better. That's true not just in the physical realm, it is true in a, a lot of different dimensions. Experts would tell you today that in our society, in the year 2015, in the United States of America, well, there is one word that sums up people probably better than any other word. That word is dissatisfied. People are dissatisfied at work. They are dissatisfied at home. They're dissatisfied with relationships. They're dissatisfied with finances. They're dissatisfied with the country and what's going on. They're even dissatisfied with their health. And they're not afraid to tell anybody about it. They're just dissatisfied. That even carries over into spiritual lives. There are a lot of people that are dissatisfied in their walk with God. They feel like something's missing. They feel empty oftentimes inside and out. There is a hollowness about their walk with the Lord. 
Maybe you have felt that way at different times in your life. Maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you are dissatisfied in the depths of your soul. If that's the case, I want to share with you a little secret from Jesus himself. Go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and you can see this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. This is good teaching. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now that comes right out of the mouth of Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you're empty, if your soul doesn't feel very good and you need to put something into it, the promise of the Bible, more than just the promise of the Bible, the promise of Jesus himself is that if you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, which means if you are hungry and thirsty for right standing with God, then you will be filled. That's the blessing that is out there for you. If that is the the defining aspect of your life, if you're dissatisfied in your walk with the Lord and you are hungry and thirsty for more, then the blessing of God filling up that emptiness is there for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Which means you can know God. You can be known by Him. That relationship can go beyond anything that you ever thought possible. You can have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the blessing of knowing Him. Isn't that great news? It really is. And there are a lot of Christians today that understand that. They really do. That is possible, but they've never experienced it. They've never got their soul wrapped around that type of a relationship. Instead, they've, they've held God at arm's length, not really believing that it is possible. My friends, it is possible. It is possible. One of the biggest stumbling blocks that people have in accepting that type of a relationship comes out in the most tangible of ways. We love a God that we cannot, many people believe, we cannot see. But the truth is, we can. He's all around us. We see God in creation. We see God in answered prayer. We see God in the actions of other people. We see God in His Word. God is very visible for those that see Him. But for a lot of people, they still don't believe they can. God is invisible, and it's impossible for me to connect with Him as a result of that. I have an iPhone, a smartphone. My whole family does now. My wife has one. All three of our children do. Which, by the way, here's just a little soapbox statement for you. You can do with this whatever you want. This is just Phil and Tina's opinion. Our kids did not have cell phones until they were 17, 18 years old. We did not buy them smartphones. They bought their own smartphones. We pay the plan. They paid for the phone. We didn't pay any plan prior to that because the only people in the world that they needed to call was us. That's it. And so we provided a $5 a month track phone for our kids if they wanted it. None of them wanted it. So we said, well, that's fine. Then borrow a phone from your friends. Find a pay phone if you can still dig one up. If you need to call us, you'll have to find another way to do it because we weren't going to pay for that and we didn't believe that our kids' faces need to be buried in their phones all the time. So we just didn't do it. That's my own little soapbox for you. Now, at 17, 18 years old, all three of our kids have smartphones and we have smartphones or a little app on there that we have come to really appreciate. Nick, our oldest son, lives on the east side of Montana. He was in Alaska last summer, and this is when we started using it. That app is called FaceTime. Those of you that have an iPhone are aware of what that is. You can call somebody else that has an iPhone and talk to them face-to-face just by the, the camera on your phone. You just hold it up. There you are, and there they are, and you can span 
hundreds, thousands of miles and talk to people face to face. It is a cool aspect of technology. It really is. So Nick, who lives out in the middle of nowhere, doesn't have very good telephone coverage, but he has great internet service. That's the only way we talk to him. Fun part about that is he can show us what's going on in his life just by spinning his phone around. And we can show him what's going on in our life just by spinning our phone around. So when we talk with him, more often than not, it is via FaceTime. Now, I've gotten kind of hooked on it, and so I like to play around with it. If Eli, our other son, happens to be down in the basement in his bedroom, and I am upstairs laying on the couch, and I want to talk to him, I FaceTime him because I know he's going to have his phone with him. So I'm laying on the couch FaceTiming Eli while he's laying in bed. Usually when he answers, he says things like this, what, dad? (laughs) I'm like... I just missed you, son. I wanted to talk with you, and so I'm talking with him. Katie might be in her bedroom reading, and I'm laying upstairs, and so I'll just FaceTime her, and she'll say, Dad, what are you doing? I just wanted to talk to you. Because a lot of you know that I don't handle alone time very well, and so this is a wonderful connecting point for me. I've started talking to some other people in the church. Brian Stewart called me the other day, and I thought, well, I know he has an iPhone. This will be kind of fun. I'll just FaceTime him. Well, he never FaceTimed before. It kind of freaked him out, (laughs) and so... There was my big mug on his phone and his big mug on mine, and we're talking back and forth that way. It's just a cool little thing. Wouldn't that be fun if we could do that with God? Wouldn't that be a great thing if we were able to FaceTime God? Well, the truth is we can, and it is available to us through a relationship with him. It is possible, and the reality is it's easy. We just have to overcome some misconceptions, and if we can do that, This intimate relationship with God is not only possible, it becomes a part of our lives. And that is just great news. And we follow it all the way through the Bible. There are a number of scholars that would tell you that after the fall of man and Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, FaceTime with God stopped. I'm not one of those teachers. I believe that FaceTime continued for quite some time after the Garden of Eden. And here's why I believe that. Cain and Abel were still seeing God face to face after they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We know that other people were able to see God face to face. It took on a little bit of different terminology. Let me show you some of that. We'll go to the book of Genesis. First book of the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter 5. Let me introduce some of you for the first time to a wonderful guy in Scripture. We don't know much about him. He only shows up two different times. This is the first time. This is Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. Enoch, we don't know, ever saw God face to face, but we know he walked with him. We know that he had such an intimate relationship with the Lord that it was defined this way. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, because God took him up into heaven. He's one of only two people that never died. There's Enoch and there's Elijah, and Enoch was just taken up into heaven. That's how close and intimate his relationship with the Lord was, and God didn't choose to give us any more details about it. He just said, Enoch walked with me. Enoch was close to me. Well, if you skip over to chapter 6, you'll see that same terminology again. This is verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Again, great terminology. It doesn't necessarily say that they were talking face-to-face with God, but it does say they were walking with Him. There's great implication in that. So all the way up to Genesis chapter 6, we're finding people walking with God. You could argue that Abraham, all the way into Genesis chapter 19, was still seeing God face-to-face. And certainly if he wasn't, he saw the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. 
He saw Jesus, even in the Old Testament, face to face. And the Bible would say this about him. He was a friend of God. David, there is no implication at all anywhere in Scripture that he saw God face to face, yet he was called a friend of God. That's deep relationship. It really is. That is powerful relationship. They walked with God. They were friends of God. And all through the Old Testament, we see that type of relationship. People hearing from God and people talking back to God. It wouldn't be until the intertestamental period, that time between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, lasted a little over 400 years. It wouldn't be until that time that people stopped hearing anything from God. The Lord went silent in the intertestamental period. He didn't speak through the prophets. He didn't speak to anybody. He was just quiet. But when he ended it, God started talking to people again, FaceTime, through His Son, Jesus Christ. When God started speaking again, He spoke loudly because He wanted people to hear a message of love and grace and mercy and acceptance. And He communicated that message through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as a result of that time, today we can have a close, intimate, FaceTime relationship with God. Some of you might say, how? I've tried. I don't understand how it's possible. You stand up there and say that we can have an intimate relationship with Jesus, but how do we do it? Well, it's really a two-part idea. It begins with His Word. This is how God speaks to us. And if we will get familiar with the Bible, we will then be able to hear the voice of God. If we learn the precepts that are contained in here, then they will become a part of our life and you will understand how God feels about things, how God sees things, how God interprets things, how God wants you to feel about things and see things and interpret things. The Bible is the key to that. Now, I am not clueless to the fact that a lot of people have wanted to understand Scripture and they just haven't been able to do it. Try as they might, the Bible has seemed somewhat elusive to them. As much effort as they pull into it, understanding seems to still just flee from them. Well, I want to help you figure out how to do that by bringing together another aspect. And this is all part of FaceTime with God. The first part is listening to God, and the second part is talking to God through prayer. And if you will link the two, bring them together, the Bible and prayer then you can begin to have a FaceTime relationship with the Lord. Go to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. The 119th Psalm. Psalm 119, verse 18. The psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. Now there's at least three things that I want you to see in this. The first one is this. God has wonderful things to teach you. If you do not pray about it, it will be impossible to learn those things. Without God, it will be impossible to learn those things. But if you do, they're game changers. God will reveal things to you that you could not understand otherwise. Now that still leaves us saying, how do we pull that off? Because when we read the Bible, it it can just be hard. It can be confusing. Let me ask a transparent question. How many of you have read Scripture and, and found yourself saying, I have absolutely no idea what I just read? And how many of you have done that time and time again? And to the point that sometimes you just don't even want to pick up your Bible. All right. Thank you for your honesty. There's a lot of people that would say exactly the same thing. Well, the 119th Psalm gives us a way through that by linking the Word of God and prayer. 
I want to take you on a a seven-part exploration of this that I would encourage you to make a pattern of prayer in your life. You can use it on a daily basis. Seven parts, seven days to a week. I'll show you how it works. In your bulletin, there is a, a flyer, white piece of paper called Sermon Notes. On the back of it, there's an outline. If you'll pull that out, you'll be able to go through this with us. Now remember, all of this comes out of the 119th Psalm. And what we're talking about is praying unto understanding. Praying unto understanding. So here's what we learned from the psalmist. Seven parts of prayer, seven days. If you use it, it'll work. So on Monday, if you were to read a passage of Scripture and then pray this prayer right here, Pray that God will teach you the Bible. God will answer. Now that's found in chapter 119, verse 12. Listen to what the psalmist says. Teach me your decrees. Now the psalmist is saying, Lord, I've heard them, but I'm not understanding them, so teach them to me. So you read a passage of scripture and pray this prayer. Lord, teach me the Bible. Help me understand this. And then do nothing more. You just wait. But remember, you have to read the passage and then pray the prayer so that you're giving God something to teach you from. On day two, Tuesday, you pray this prayer. Pray that God will not hide his word from you. Now, this is all linked to verse 19, the first part of it. We read it just a minute ago. Do not hide your commands from me. Now, that's a tough thing for some people to understand, but the Bible would teach that in judgment from time to time, God withholds his teaching. He withholds his word. So on Tuesday, you're praying, God, don't hide your word from me, which means that you are exposing sin in your life and you're seeking forgiveness for it, that God might actually give you his word. On Wednesday, you pray this prayer. Pray that God will help you understand. Verse 27, the psalmist says, let me understand the teachings of your precepts, then I will meditate on your wonders. So you pray for understanding. Now remember, we're using the same passage of Scripture. So let's say that you started in the the Gospel of Luke and you read Luke chapter 1 Monday morning. And then you prayed that God would help you understand it. You prayed that God would not hide it from you. And now you are praying, Lord, help me put it all together. This is on day three and you're still reading the same passage. But now all of a sudden it's starting to make sense to you. So that on Thursday you can pray this prayer. Pray that God will turn your heart toward his word over everything else. This is found in verse 36. Turn my heart toward your statues and not toward selfish gain. You have to understand that sometimes when we read the Bible, we do so with our own agenda. Trying to prove our own points, we put our own wishes, desires, and wants out there, and we want God to validate them. Well, when we pray a prayer like this, it's a prayer of understanding, but we're also praying a prayer of faithfulness. Lord, turn my heart towards what your Bible teaches over everything else. Oftentimes, we reverse that. Lord, let your word give me what I want. Break that pattern. On Friday, if you were to pray that God will give you long life to be an example for him, you'll be following the pattern of the psalmist. Listen to this, verse 88. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your mouth. There is nothing wrong with saying, okay, God, now I understand. Give me a long time to live this out. Help me have a number of years on this earth so that I can do what you've told me to do. I want to practice it. I want to get it right. Then on Saturday, you can pray this prayer. Remember, we're still using the same passage of Scripture. Pray that God will make you faithful to what His Word teaches. 
This is in the 133rd verse. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. And then on Sunday, you bring that passage together with this. Pray that God will come after you if you wander from his word. If you move away from the truth that he has revealed to you. Verse 176. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. If you were here last week, you heard us talk about God coming after those that have strayed from the truth and even utilizing his church to come after those that have strayed from the truth. In this prayer, you're saying, God, you've revealed it to me. I want to do it. And if I mess it up, come get me. If I don't do what I'm supposed to do, Lord, come find me and turn me back around so that I can be faithful to your word. Folks, if you want understanding from the Bible, that's what it requires. If you want an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ so that you know the heart of God, this is what it requires. It requires the Bible and it requires prayer. But it'll take you deep into that relationship. Let me show you a guy that was trying to find a shortcut around that. This is in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now, this is a wonderful interchange. We don't have any idea who this guy was. His name is not listed in Scripture. We know that he was an expert in the realm of the law. We knew that he was a Jew. We knew that he taught it. So here he is talking to Jesus, and he says this, and so many people say the exact same thing. Tell me what I must do to have eternal life. Tell me what I must do to be saved. That is a duty question, meaning, Lord, tell me what is the minimum required to get what I want. What is the minimum required so that I can have the things that I want? There's a lot of people that approach a relationship with God just like that. What's the smallest investment I can make to get the biggest return? That is not an intimate relationship. Not at all. Now, interestingly enough, this man would do the exact same thing that Jesus would do. When Jesus said, now hold it, you're an expert in the law. Why don't you tell me what the answer to your own question is? I love the way Jesus responds to him. And he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees about the greatest commandment, he would say the same thing. The first is to love the Lord your God, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this man would respond the same way. Maybe he'd heard Jesus say it. Or maybe because he was an expert in the law, he knew that the first four of the Ten Commandments deal with us loving the Lord our God. And the last six deal with us loving our neighbor, loving the people around us. He brought them together. And now Jesus says, do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll more than just survive, you will thrive. Figure these things out, especially this one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Pour everything you have into it, and you're going to get the relationship you want, a deep, intimate relationship. And God's Word brought together with prayer of understanding will allow you to experience that. So learn how to put those two together, and the prayers of Psalm 119 can help you with that. Put them together, and it'll take you past the duty questions. 
What's the least I can do to get the biggest payoff? It'll put you squarely in a place that says, what's the most I can do to love you the most I can? That's what we're shooting for. That's intimacy. That's a relationship with the Lord. So we hear that, and then we still find ourselves saying, okay, that's our part. We're going to pray, and we're going to read the Word, but where is God? Where is God? Because I can't see Him. Where is God? Because I can't sit down across the table from Him. Where is He at? Well, again, really good question. Let's let the Bible answer it. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. This time, to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 16. I'm going to show you a verse of Scripture. You need to highlight in your Bible. You need to underline it, memorize it. Make sure it is a part of your relationship with the Lord all the time. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Where is God and what is He doing? There's your answer. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. God is watching you. God is paying attention to your life every moment of every day. He is there ready to strengthen you, to build you up, to encourage you, to do what needs to be done in your life. God is watching and He is ready. Now you want to see some practical ways that that happens? Then listen again to the psalmist. This is Psalm 94, verse 18. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. Has your world ever been slipping away around you? Have you ever been standing on crumbling ground, feeling like you were losing control of everything? A lot of you have. The Bible says when that happens, God supports you. He's there to lift you up. Anybody ever wrestled with anxiety? I'm sure many of you have. It's one of the greatest epidemics in our world today. Well, the Bible says that when it is really bad, God is there to replace the anxiety with joy because God is watching and He cares. He's in a loving relationship with you. Let's go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and you'll see how this plays out. I want you to catch a little bit of the backstory. So here we go, verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Now, here's what you have to understand. Israel and Judah were at one time the combined nation of Israel. Then we went into a period called the divided kingdom. That's where we're at right here. Israel was to the north and Judah was to the south. Now, let me make sure you've got that. Israel was to the... And Judah was to the The city of Jerusalem is found in the nation of Judah, which is to the south. And Israel is to the The temple of the Lord is found in the city of Jerusalem, which is in the nation of, which is to the, and Israel is to the, okay, you guys are with me. Asa is the king of Judah, which is to the, south, and Basha, or Basha, is the king of Israel, which is to the north. Everybody's on the same page now. You got all this figured out, right? There you go. That was a quick lesson in biblical geography. Now, moving on. So here's what's happening. Israel is coming against Judah. So Basha is going to fight against Asa. 
He is fortifying the cities along the border so that none of the people from the nation of Judah can escape. And when he decides to march on them, he's going to lay waste to them. That's the whole plan. So here's what happens. Verse 2. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, and there was, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. This is an atrocity. He took the silver and gold from God's temple. God's temple is found in the city of Jerusalem, which is in the nation of, which is to the, and Israel is to the, and so Basha, or I'm sorry, Asa, took the dedicated sacred things of God and used them to make a bargain with the world. That's exactly what he did. He took the dedicated things of God and he used them to make a bargain with the world. You ever taken the dedicated things of God? And use them to bargain with the world. That's what Asa did. It's horrible. It's horrible. Now listen to what happens. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Ijen, Dan, Abel, Malan, and the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah, and they carried away from Ramah the stores and the timbers Basha had been using. With them, he built up Geba and Mizpah. Now, let's stop there for just a second. Does it sound like he made a good trade when he took the sacred things of God and used them to bargain with the world? He just won the battle. Asa just won the battle. Basha is now withdrawing from his borders. Everything sounds good because he took the sacred things and he moved them out into the world and the world joined forces with him and everything was great until you read the next verse. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with a great number of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Now here we are, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. He may have won the battle. But he lost the the war. And he lost the war because he traded the sacred things of God for the world's protection instead of trusting God. And as a result of it, the rest of his reign was defined by war, by battle, and by struggles because he traded the sacred things of God for his own wants instead of trusting that God was watching He'd already been saved by the Lord before. That's what the seer was saying. That's what the man of God was saying to him. You have already been delivered by God. Why wouldn't you trust him? He is watching. All you had to do was call on him and he'd have been here. How come you didn't say anything? God was watching the whole thing. You ever been delivered by the hand of God and then the next time that you needed God refused to do anything? Refused to even call on God? Our stubbornness causes us to do that at times. But for Asa, it was so bad that he actually traded the sacred things, the things that belong to the Lord. Sadly enough, many of us are guilty of the same thing. I want you to see what happens in the rest of his life. 
The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his honor. He never did recover. So here he was sick, unable to trust that God was watching, and his faith was only in the doctors, only in the physicians, and not in God. Now, I love that that's in the Bible. He put his faith and his hope only in the doctors. And I believe that we ought to trust the doctors that are around us. But I also believe that when you're trusting the doctors, you need to pray. That's why we were in the hospital last night with a family. We were there because the doctors were doing what they were doing and we were doing what we could do, which was praying right there with them and trusting that God was watching the whole situation. In fact, throughout the course of this morning, I've been in conversation with him. That's Steve Snockenberg, by the way. He's in surgery right now in Spokane. He was in an accident last night, and that put him over in Spokane this morning. And I've been communicating with Denise as she's been giving us the different updates, and we've been able to say we're praying right along with you. As the doctors are doing what they're doing, we're praying right along with you. And folks, that's the way it's supposed to work in an intimate relationship with God, because God is watching and he is ready to strengthen those who are committed to him. But we trade the sacred things, even the gift of prayer. We trade that. We trade it because we don't have this face-to-face connection with the Lord, which in reality we do if we will just claim it. It's as good as an app on your smartphone or even better because it's with God. And God responds. He's watching your life. He knows what's going on. So just bring him into it. That's all it takes. And intimacy is there. But you be careful that you don't trade the sacred things for your own wants so that he get what you want. It just doesn't work that way. So be careful that you're following what God's word says and you're following the relationship. And then you will experience an intimacy like a father with his children. Eli, our youngest son, middle child, graduated from high school in May of this year. Katie, my little baby daughter, graduates next May. I don't like talking about either one of those scenarios. I'm not happy about it. I just assume we roll back the hands of time. Can't do it. That's the way it is. So they graduated from high school. One of the things that we have determined, Nick, our oldest, is 22 in just a, a few more weeks. For the last 22 years, we have loved watching our children. I don't think that'll ever end. We have loved watching our children. Particularly during their high school years, we have had great opportunities to watch them doing different things. Nick played basketball for four years. We loved watching him play basketball. Eli played basketball for one year, golf for three years. Loved watching him. Katie's coming into her fourth year of tennis. Loved watching her play tennis. It's all been a, a lot of fun. The real challenge for us came when Eli started playing golf. Three years ago, he got onto the golf team and was able to play in his first varsity tournament. And I'd never been to a golf tournament in high school before, so I was real excited about it. Eli and I were making great plans. I'd be his caddy if they would let me. I'd have been happy to carry his clubs through the whole, whole game. So we were all set to go. He was playing on a Wednesday. Tina had to work. She couldn't get off. I took the day off. Matt Warner was going to go with me. We were going to walk around the whole course just watching Eli play golf. It was going to be a fantastic day. He came home from practice on Tuesday night, and he said, Dad, you can't come. And I thought, well, what in the world? The wheels have fallen off here. Are you afraid I'm going to embarrass you? 
Uh, do you think I'm going to be standing over on the sidelines of the fairway yelling out things I shouldn't or when you're putting, I'll be trying to, what do you mean I can't come? And so I'm getting pretty upset with him. I'm like, ah, no, Eli, I'm going to be there and Matt's coming with me. He said, no, 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 dad. Coach Rohr says you can't be there. No parents are allowed to come. I said, what? I've never heard of anything like that in high school. Then I thought a little bit more about it and I realized that if you line the fairways of golf courses with parents, with high school kids playing, you're going to bean a whole bunch of parents with golf balls. And so it was really a safety issue. That's what it was as I thought through it. But I, I was still upset about it. I said, Eli, you got to call Coach Rohr. you got to call Dan. See what you can do. Dan was in first service. We were talking about this. I said, you got to call Dan and see what he can pull off. So he did. He called his coach at home that night. And Dan said, okay, Eli, I totally understand. But you, your dad can't come to the game. It's just against the rules. He can't be there. But here's what we'll do. That's why I like Dan. He said, you tell him to show up a little bit early. And we'll put him out in the woods. And nobody will know he's there. And he'll be in there. <laughs> He'll be at the first tee box, and, and he can watch you tee off at the first tee box, and then you go on from there. And I was like, score? That's cool. So I was there, and Matt was right beside me, and we were hiding in the woods as we were watching Eli swing from the, the first tee box. And as soon as he and it, by the way, it was a great shot, right down the middle of the fairway. As soon as that was done, we headed out, got in the truck, and came back to the church. But we were there. We were watching. You realize that there's a, a number of times that it seems to us like God isn't there. But he's really in the woods. Eli threw a glance over his shoulder just before he teed off. He knew where I was at. He threw this glance over his shoulder and we made eye contact and he got on the tee box and he hit that ball. We can do the same thing with God. He is there. and He is watching. You just have to recognize it. Call out to him. Throw a glance his way that he might respond and encourage your heart and build you up and do for you everything that he needs to do. That's this intimate relationship of God the Heavenly Father with His children. Don't leave that on the table because you just want the duty-bound relationship with Him. What's the minimum you can do? You do the most you can do that you might have the best relationship possible. Bring together prayer and the Word that you might really hear from God and then you tell Him what's going on in your life and you've got face time with God. And that's the way it works. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Well, Father in Heaven... I'm grateful that you allow us this type of intimacy and connection with you. Very grateful. I know that sometimes our stubbornness gets in the way. And Lord, I'm sorry for that. I pray that you'll forgive us. I pray that in those moments where I think I have a better way and I choose not to talk to you about it, I pray, Lord, you'll forgive me for that. And remind me of what's possible with you. Help me experience that. Lord, I know this, that when there's distance between me and you, it's not your fault, it's mine. So convict me of it, stir my heart, and do that for everybody in this room, Lord, that we might be close to you, always, experiencing the best of you, instead of just taking the leftovers or the minimum. Lord, help us thrive. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.